And another thing And another thing And another thing And another thing Welcome to And Another Thing podcast. I'm your co-host, Tony Clement. Jody Jenkins is taking the day off, and we will hear from him in later podcasts, of course. So I'll be doing this solo. And uh, we've got a great guest, so it works out absolutely <laughs> fine. And uh, thanks uh, thanks for joining us. Um, I'm just going to thank our our regular sponsors first, because they're uh, such a part of our success. And uh, we'd be remiss if we did not do. Of course, our principal sponsor is Municipal Solutions. John Mutton and the gang are there as Ontario's leading MZO firm. Uh, and uh, they are great at development approvals, permit expediting, planning services with, with municipalities, engineering and architectural services, minor variances and land severances and building permits. So you can go to municipalsolutions.ca and uh, John and the gang will help you out there. We also have the Muskoka chef, Julie. Uh, she, is a, uh, she has a female-owned local food service company that services the Muskoka Lakes region all year round. And she has such services as on-site and off-site catering, private chef experiences, micro-wedding catering services, and she is located right on Lake Joseph. She delivers food by car, of course, to your front door, or by boat to your dock. Now, summer 2022 is with us right now, of course, and she has been very busy. She still may have a couple of spots left for the summer, but also she has spots available from September 2022 and beyond. She offers vegetarian, vegan, and gluten-free options as well. And you can find Julie at themuskokachef.com, as well as calling her directly at 416-846-3653. Jody would want me to also remind you that uh, we are also found uh, on Looney Politics. They have a wonderful news aggregator site, and we have a specific podcast. We're just uh, wrapping up another episode for them in the next uh, few days. Uh, and if you uh, if you sign on to looneypolitics.com and mention podcast, you get a, a discount. Finally, last but not least, you can also hear our podcast on terrestrial radio at huntersbayradio.com every Saturday morning at 8.30 a.m. Go to huntersbayradio.com. Ha! Huh, that's tough doing all of that individually yeah. without Jody helping me out, but uh, Tasha Carradine, th welcome to our show. Let me do a, a brief intro about you. You've been on our podcast before, of course. You are the uh, you are a new, well, uh, the latest book that you've written is called The Right Path. You are a public affairs consultant, commentator, writer, speaker, and I should mention co-chair of the Jean Charest Leadership Campaign. And I understand that the right path charts a course for Canadian conservatives uh, with the rise of populism, uh, I guess, in Canada and around the world. So we're going to talk about all that. But first of all, welcome to the program. Well, thanks so much, Tony. My gosh, you do yeoman's work. And, and congrats for having all those sponsors. That shows us the show is a success. So that's wonderful. 
Well, it is kind of cool. Like uh, there are over 7 million different podcasts on Spotify as an example. And uh, to have one that is monetized, uh, you know, it feels good. It feels good. It doesn't happen to everybody, but uh, we've worked hard at that aspect of it. And uh, you are episode number 141. So we're, wow. we're, <laughs> Thank feeling, you. we're feeling like we're, uh, we're, we, we're, we're continuing to um, succeed and to uh, bring out new content. So, uh, let's get let's get to the right path. Uh, what's the premise of the book, first of all? Okay, so the right path is, as you sort of implied, it's a roadmap uh, to win the next election for the Conservative Party of Canada, and it explores these twin arcs of populism and conservatism, not just in their current incarnation, but in Canadian politics uh, throughout the last century, really, and it analyzes it with respect to three key sets of voters: new Canadians urban and suburban voters and millennials and Gen Z. So I talked to hundreds of people. I did a lot of research, uh, read a lot of books, got a lot of data and found, um, you know, how can the party channel these currents? Can it channel both these currents? Is there a better way or a, a not as good way to appeal to these different gr groups of voters without which, quite frankly, the party will not be a force um, in the future politically unless it captures those voter bases in the next decade? Yeah, and I, th I think this is an imp important point because obviously uh, 2015 was the first national election where millennials were a significant force in that particular election. So maybe get, take us through that analysis of the last, say, three elections federally and uh, what your what your conclusions are. Yeah, well, the last three elections to me were all lost on pretty much the same metric, which is a lack of trust. Um, the party broke trust first with new Canadian voters in 2015 when it proposed the barbaric practices tip line. And it's not just me saying that. Uh, there's a report that came out from the party that was done after the 2021 vote that found that this issue still lingered. And in talking to candidates, uh, who told me they were at the door, you know, and being told they were racist and they themselves were new Canadians, um, people of color. And they said, I was being told I was a racist for being a conservative. And they were so flabbergasted by this, but there is still an element of stigma that the Tories have to acknowledge and address, particularly really in, in sort of urban and suburban areas. The second election they lost, um, it was of course, 2019, where Andrew Scheer, I would say, uh, broke trust because people, some people said he had a hidden agenda on abortion in particular, that issue tripped him up. He was not clear. Um, that whole, you know, what are the conservatives really about thing that drives me crazy, but there it is, um, haunted him. And then finally in 2021, Aaron O'Toole was, uh, ran as a blue Tory, ran as a blue conservative to win the leadership. And then he pivoted more to the center, right. And that alienated people within his party, within the conservative party. And they felt they couldn't trust him. So, Again, it, the, the message here really to me in this whole process, leadership and the future of the party is authenticity matters. The conservatives have to figure out what they're about, what their brand is, and their leader has to to be that and be, be genuine about it. And I think that is that is one of the biggest challenges going forward. How I, 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 I don't disagree with you, obviously. Uh, we, we do need authenticity in our leadership and we do need um, someone who can communicate. Do you talk about communication, the, the the need to communicate better to the electorate? Is that one of your primary thrusts? 
Um, it is, and it really depends who you're talking to. And, and one of the issues is language. And this is, um, first of all, I want to be really clear that the book, I started writing this book after the 2021 election. The mm -hmm. leadership was not even a gleam in anyone's eye at that time. Um, I was focused on why the Tories had lost that election, what it represented. And so I started talking to people, doing some interviews, got a book deal, and then boom, suddenly the convoy hit Ottawa, Aaron O'Toole lost his job, and we were plunged into a leadership race. And that, of course, uh, changed the complexion of the book, but the book is not about who should win the, the leadership. It is about how the party should lead the country. That is really the focus. So it looks at the currents that are represented by different people in the race, no question. Um, but in terms of what you're talking about, Yes, communication is incredibly important because you have to reach, you have to rebuild that big tent. And how do you do it? You need to find something that's language wise, uh, will unite people, will be a common element they can relate to, doesn't alienate people. And unfortunately, what I've observed in the current race is that um, the, particularly the word freedom, which is a very storied conservative word, no question, um, and represents many things, represented many things, positive things throughout history. Uh, you know, has become basically attached to the convoy, which unfortunately, while it turns on a certain segment of the electorate, turns off another. And you get this polarization around the concept of freedom that unfortunately makes it a very difficult word to unite people with. The word I say actually can is the word that is something every one of the three groups I mentioned is seeking, and that's opportunity. Hmm. All three groups, New Canadians, you know, urban, suburban, future generations, they all want the opportunity to achieve their dreams, buy that house, get that job, uh, be able to, you know, sort of live their live their lives in the way they want. It's not about freedom so much. In fact, it's about having that opportunity to do it. And that's what I say is a uniting concept that can bridge this whole populist conservative divide that we're seeing that is quite frankly, almost tearing our party apart right now. I've noticed. Uh, I, I know. I know you want to talk about your book, but the, the 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 context of all of this, whether we like it or not, is we are in the middle of a leadership contest. So, mm -hmm. so uh, I guess I'm looking at it through that lens a little bit too. And what I've noticed is, uh, as the leadership race has progressed, that actually, when when push comes to shove, a lot of what Pierre Polyev is talking about a lot of what Jean Charest is talking about. They're almost 100% in agreement now on on the, some of the things that Trudeau is getting wrong. Some of the opportunities that people need. Maybe maybe their language is different. I I I, I grant you that. But they're they're basically singing from the same hymn book. Uh, would you agree agree or disagree with that? Um, well, I wouldn't completely agree. I think the okay. ultimate goal, I mean, I'd like to think the ultimate goal is obviously we want the best for the party. We want to win the next election. Um, but I think that, uh, one of the dividing lines that we've seen is the issue of law and order, which unfortunately, again, this is, this is an issue that it's a pillar of conservatism since the, the ye olden days, since the origins of Edmund Burke, uh, the tension between freedom and security as Burke plays it out, is to say you cannot have liberty without restraint. And for many conservatives in the center-right um, and the sort of accessible blue liberals, a lot of what the convoy represented was liberty with no restraint. And that, unfortunately, again, it's optics, it's language, but it is, it is important because campaigns are run around these things. You have to find a way to rally people to a vision. And if they think, if they, if they in their mind associate you with something like we were associated with the barbaric practices tip line, you have, it's hard sometimes to dispel that it becomes and the liberals will use it. 
quite frankly. They will use it to their advantage. So I don't think Josh Ray and Pierre Polyev are saying the same thing. I think, um, like I said, I'd like to think they both want this, the best thing, but I think that um, Polyev approaches it from a freedom angle of, you know, freedom. He wants to make Canada the freest country in the world. Now, personally, I don't even fully know what that means. It does excite some people, like my, my own stepson supporting Pierre. And, you know, we had a very lively conversation about mm-hmm. this in the right book. Um, however, um, what John's talking about on the other side is unity and the unity of the party and country. And I have trouble seeing freedom as the unifying word. So I don't think they're talking about the exact same thing. I think they're they're approaching this from this perspective. And John said it, you know, law and order is a pillar that kind of got lost in the convoy for a lot of people. Freedom became associated with anarchy instead of with law and order. And that is a problem. So, you know, um, no, I think I think people have a choice in terms of vision. But like I said, um, at the end of the day, whoever whoever wins and, you know, obviously I want my guy to win, but that's at the end of the day, whoever wins is they're going to have to take this basket of conservatives and figure out how to keep them together. So that's what the book is saying is that we've got to move to that point. And I'm, I'm not sure um, each of them has a different strategy for that. So that, that I'll just leave it there. <laughs> sure, sure. No. And, and again, I'm not trying to pick apart. Uh, I, I think I think the two candidates do offer very different things, but I've just noticed some of the language is starting to converge a little bit. Not not totally, but I, some of it is. Yeah, Tony, all of us can agree on that we think Trudeau has been a disaster for the country. There is a hundred percent agreement. I, I don't see much daylight on that, and I agree too. And I think that, you know, any observer and in the research I did, it was quite fascinating actually to see just how bad for Canada Trudeau was. Um, and it's not even what you think. The the reason he was he was such a bad prime minister is because he approached government as a leveler, as a redistribution mechanism. And even Bill Morneau has said that the government was not focused on prosperity. It was focused on making government your friend by redistributing money from one group to another. Um, and the, the seeds were sown in the book Plutocrats by Christa Freeland, where she said, you know, the rich are getting way too rich. We got to take their money, give it to the middle class. The problem was she was analyzing the American middle class. And the American middle class, quite frankly, yes, had serious problems after the 2008 financial crisis. They had a housing crash like we did not have in Canada. And they lost a lot of wealth. A lot of wealth was lost. The the impact on generations was enormous. So in the U.S., it was very different. And that redistribution theory, um, which I personally don't subscribe to, but in that sense, if you redistributed money to the middle class, yeah, you would make up for some of the, the wealth they lost. In Canada, they were doing great. Under Stephen Harper, the middle class improved their lot year over year. They weren't in trouble. So when Trudeau decided that they were and he was going to throw money at them to fix the problem, quotes unquote, the statistics show they actually ended up making less money at the end of the day. Um, they actually, their incomes went down because people started working less because right. they subsidized it. And, and, you know, that's why it's so sad, actually, because he created a problem where there was none. And then on top of that, there was all the woke politics and identity politics that, you know, he's such a hypocrite about. I'm a feminist, but at the same time, we know he's been, you know, accused of impropriety uh, and and has certainly behaved towards women like Jody Wilson-Raybould, treated them very badly. I mean, you know, he the contradictions are rife. So people are angry at him for that, too. And that undermined a lot of the, of the goodwill he was trying to build. At the end of the day, I think our government is our country is so divided because of those seeds that he sowed, and then populism kind of picked up the mantle and, and you know exacerbated it. So now we're in the situation where you've got real polarity in in the public opinion. But isn't populism uh, doesn't it arise because uh, the establishment or the elites or Pierre calls them the gatekeepers aren't listening to a whole 
set of people in the population? Isn't that isn't that where the where the problem initially arises? Well, and that's fascinating too. Populism actually arises from the lack of social mobility. There's research that's been done on populism um, by two guys, Eric Protzer, who's American, and Paul Somerville, who's a, a Canadian uh, professor out of UVic. And they looked at all these, these metrics. People say, oh, populism arises when there's too much immigration. Populism arises, like you said, when elites aren't listening. Populism arises when there's inequality. Actually, no, what they found is that it is when people feel they do all the right things and cannot get ahead. So they right. get the education, they get the job, they save the money and they still can't buy the house and they still can't do these things. And they feel the game is rigged. So yeah, they can think, oh, the game is rigged. It's very easy to say the game is rigged because there's gatekeepers that the elite stand in your way. Right. It's not that simple. In fact, um, the game can be rigged because certain groups are privileged over others. And it could be in the case of woke politics, you know, your identity will privilege you and that makes people angry because they say, why should one person get a leg up for whatever reason, whether they're an elite or whether it's because of their origins or where they come from? No one should, everyone should have a fair shot, an equal chance. If people feel the game is fair, they will accept unequal outcomes because they think everyone had the chance at least. And if they didn't get there, well, they didn't get there. But this is the problem. So populism, the reason it's so negative, Tony, is because throughout history, it's always demonized an elite. Right. And we see right. where that can go. Very dark places. So I'm not a fan of that. I think the message behind populism and the grief is real, but it can be addressed in other ways. And I talk about other solutions in the book that are conservative based solutions that address the issue and diffuse the, the anger that people have in their in their souls. Yeah, and let, let's get to that because obviously one of the things that conservatives have been grappling with uh, since 2015, at least, is how do we square conservative principles with a winning strategy. So talk a little mm -hmm. bit about that. Okay, well, conservative principles, what are they? Like I said, there's pillars to conservatism. One is law and order, which, um, you know, in any functional society, you need to have that's again, goes to fairness, a fair court system, fair tribunals, uh, fair respect for contract and all these sorts of rules. But other things that are less talked about, conservatism is very local. Okay, it's the idea that you don't have top down government. It's not even just about big government. It's about the level of government. So uh, and I'll take an example, gun control and gun laws. These issues constantly are used as wedges against the conservatives. Why? Because, well, let's face it, if you're in a rural area, guns are a very different part of your life than if you're in an urban center. And you probably in an urban center, you fear gun crime, whereas in a rural area, you may be using your gun for hunting or to defend your property because there's, you know, it, it's harder to do so when the, the police are, you know, 45 minutes away as opposed to around the corner. So the attitudes towards guns is very different. And conservatives take a blanket policy, just like the liberals do. It's like one or the other. Well, no, conservative principles are actually about local government. Why not have different sets of rules for different agglomerations? Why not say local matters from the days of de Tocqueville and Edmund Burke and the little platoons of society that they talked about at the founding core of conservatism, institutions like the family, you know, the church or whatever faith you practice, um, your local community clubs, your local levels of municipal government, school boards, all these things. That is where a lot of the real decisions are taken that really impact people's lives the most. And that is where they say we have to respect those levels and not simply raise everything up and govern from 30,000 feet. And I think if you told people that, they'd say, yeah, then we would have control over our lives, right? The stuff Pierre is talking about. But it doesn't come from throwing people out. It comes from moving the levels of decision-making down so that people actually do have control because they're the ones making those decisions. 
Uh, let me ask it a slightly different way. One of the kind of concerns that um, sort of movement conservatives and um, uh, people who have gone through the, the last three elections, one of their concerns is that somehow we move to liberal light. And if given a choice between liberals and liberal light, most people will choose liberals or at least a plurality will. So uh, do, you, do you address that issue at all? Well, yes. And I don't see it as liberal light. I think that, you know, to be a, a liberal is the redistributionist piece I talked about earlier. That's where the liberals right. have gone with their liberalism, right? They've gone so far off the deep end. They're in the NDP universe right now. And in fact, that's how they're staying in power. So they've opened up a whole opening in the center right for people who are the blue liberals who will you know, meet with the conservatives on fiscal issues. They want fiscal responsibility. They want lower taxes. They want incentive as opposed to redistribution so that People actually focus on wealth creation as opposed to just, you know, spreading it around. That is a common thread that can bind. On social issues, it is obviously trickier. And conservatives have always wrestled with how to deal with social issues, social conservatism within the party. Um, and that is something that I talk about because it really affects the conservatives' power in urban and suburban uh, neighborhoods. Um, since the 1960s, they've been losing ground to the liberals in urban Canada. Right. And... One of the reasons is because culture, urban cultures are less socially conservative. They are less religious. They are, um, you know, they're more in favor of things like abortion rights, women's rights, um, gay and lesbian rights, LGBTQ rights, all that stuff. You see that those movements first in urban agglomerations. And so you have to recognize that conservatives, yes, we have social conservatives as a part of our fabric. But on certain issues, and I mentioned abortion, I say Harper had it right. Just that one. No, you lock the door throw away the key. You could focus on other issues of social conservative concern, like woke politics in schools is a good example, what right. kids are talking about, that stuff. But you have to also make a choice and say, look, otherwise you, you don't have anything because you will not get elected in Quebec or in urban centers if you have um, a, a staunchly anti-abortion policy. You just It would just will not happen. Let's talk a little bit more about this identity politics because you really do have... I think this is actually tearing apart the progressive movement because you've got some focused on identity politics or wokeism and some still uh, attached to the traditional socioeconomic uh, divergences that they're concerned about. Uh, but uh, is the, what's the way out for conservatives on, on identity politics in your, in your point of view? Well, identity politics is, like I said earlier, it's redistributionist. It's you're saying, okay, so we're going to level the playing field by redistributing money or redistributing access to uh, whatever it could be, jobs or other things, based on identity. And when you start doing that, like I said, it's just as destructive as saying, okay, you're only going to get ahead if you're a third-generation Torontonian, you know all the right people. Um, it makes people mad on both ends of the spectrum. And ultimately, it also is uh, it's unfair to people because it creates things like quotas and um, a sense of, you know, we're, we're just going to we're going we're gonna to improve your lot in life because of of what or who you are. It's very divisive as opposed to let's all strive for excellence together. Let's set a common goal that no matter what your background or where you're from, this is what we prize socially, um, you know, as, as a society. And, and I, I give the example, for example, when, you know, you put kids in hockey Parents will never say, oh, I don't want them to go to the NHL, right? You love your kid to go to the NHL. You want them to be sure. an elite, so to speak. But that's because excellence is a value. And so to me, that is something that no matter what your background, that is what conservatives will strive for and say that is what we should all strive for. And 
So woke politics, the, the other problem with it is that um, apart from dividing people, it also uh, creates like it creates an us versus them mentality. And for young for children in particular, it's very it's become very controversial within schools. And this is something I say that conservatives actually can benefit from on another level because we're very weak at the local municipal government level, school boards, um, you know, uh, city councilors. We don't focus on that. That's where a lot of the stuff that really touches people's lives, like education, happens. And if you're not happy with what your kids are learning in school, run for the school board. Conservatives should do this. And in fact, if they made more of an effort, it would trickle up to higher levels of government. Now, Doug Ford makes a point of recruiting candidates provincially from these pools of local candidates. Why? Because they have a much easier time getting elected, you know, former mayors, city councillors, school board trustees, they have a base, they know people. So he's figured that out. But unless you have a base to draw from, obviously you can't do that. So you've got to create that farm team. And at the same time, you can tackle those issues that are very close to people that matter to them and show them that conservative ideas actually are better than the woke stuff that they're, they're being fed. The, that I guess presuppose, I mean, what, what you're talking about is a, a really holistic approach. I hate using that word, but I'm using it, <laughs> uh, uh, you know, uh, that it's not just about the national level, which everybody sort of cottons onto, but you're talking about local and, uh, and even sublocal and neighborhood level stuff, uh, which which I think you know when I when I look back, you know I started out at a, in, in a neighborhood. <laughs> I didn't I didn't start out at the national level by any stretch of the imagination. Mm -hmm. So, do you think that there's something? Uh, is it social media? Is it just uh, the the allure of national politics that kind of drives conservatives or political actors generally? to want to be part of that, you know, big thing in the shop window rather than, you know, starting out at the local level. I, I've, I've found, let me, let me just add this point. I found that, you know, when I, when I talk to people and they, they are asking for advice and say, you know, how do I get involved? And I said, well, you know, get involved at the local level. That's where I started. No, no I want to be a senior strategist. How do I, how do I become a senior strategist? I don't, you've probably had the same thing happen to you. Uh, where people are seeking advice. So do we have to kind of relearn uh, the, the neighborhood uh, help and assistance and politics uh, within our movement? Well, I think our movement has to do a few things um, to make that attractive and to make people um, feel a sense of community. And, and if anything, I found, in fact, and especially talking to young people, they really hunger for community. And I mean, IRL community, not online, but community itself being face-to-face -face with people. And the pandemic, I think, also has accelerated that. People just feel like they just want to be, you know, back to, so, quotes, unquote, normal. But what that means is that that kind of organizing, which, you know, the left does incredibly well. Like, let's be honest, the left, like the NDP in Toronto, they run local candidates. I mean, they, they don't say that they're NDP, but we know that they're NDP. And then they, they trickle up, and they do it quite a bit. Um, because in there's a sense that in urban you know, center as well, conservatives will never win, right? So why would you run a candidate in Toronto for, you know, municipal council? Why would you do this? In fact, it's actually one of the easier places to get elected because people don't really vote that much in municipal elections compared to others. So you can, if you get your vote out, have a fair shot, have a good shot actually at winning. Um, so I think we have to make that attractive, hold the sort of, you know, the, the voter clinics and the elections clinics and that kind of thing. 
And that also starts with reinstituting something that the Conservative Party abandoned in 2000 when it, or 2003 when it, when, it, when it formed, which is a national youth wing. You know, um, as someone who was in the National Youth Wing, uh, I can say it's not only about having young people involved in the party. It's about giving them a sense of community and family because that's what politics is. And I realized that in this leadership, you know, I've contemplated running for it myself, as you probably know, and explored that for a few weeks. And what I realized was a lot of it is loyalty. People would say, I love you, Tasha. You're great. But you know, I'm loyal to Jean. I'm loyal to Pierre. I've, you know, I've grown up with them in the party and that loyalty stretched all the way back to the youth politics days. And I realized that that is something that is so precious to cultivate. It's been lost, um, but it also helps form that, you know, that, that sense of local community because your riding is ultimately where you start as a youth politician. Like that's, yeah, I was my riding level with Bob Layton. Jack Layton's father. Right. My first, I was 14 years old. And so I worked in the local riding office when I was 16 and hung out with the local people and like the local kids. And we had fun and the fun is a big part of it. So I think that it starts there. And I think you would have a better shot at convincing people to start from the ground up if you made the ground more attractive. Tasha Carradine is the author of The Right Path. You can where can you where can you get your book, Tasha? Oh, okay. So go to therightpathbook.com and it lists all the places. You can buy it direct from the publisher. You can get a signed copy if you do that. Um, you can get it from Amazon if you want it tomorrow. And um, you can, you know, if you're overseas, you can go to Barnes and Noble. It's all listed there. So therightpathbook.com. And you can also find it all the tour dates if I'm coming to see you where you can come in and have a book signing and this kind of thing um, and some news because lots of we're going to post your podcast there. All the, all the media is there too. Fantastic. Well, listen, thanks for being part of our program. It's been great having you back with this uh, very pertinent subject. Um, I'm just going to thank our sponsors and we'll let you go. But uh, let's uh, let's thank our sponsors, municipalsolutions.ca, John Mutton, uh, again, Ontario's leading MZO firm, the Muskoka Chef, Julie. You can find her at themuskokachef.com, looneypolitics.com. They've got spe- we've got special podcasts in there. And then huntersbayradio.com for a terrestrial rebroadcasting of our podcast. Thanks for listening today.